This is a podcast where I talk to people about the things they're obsessed with. My name is Marcus Privet, and this is my obsession. Jess Modaf, we're sitting here in your office uh, recording an episode of My Obsession, and I met you over lunch break, yeah. so this is cool, a yep. little midday recording, Yep. and I don't know where I heard, I think your husband Matt told me about this topic with you, that yeah. you're obsessed with this, and I decided to seek you out for it, so do you, would you like to give an introduction on your secret <laughs> obsession that's not so secret? <laughs> Yes. Uh, my obsession is with disaster survival stories. Okay. And is that what distinguishes a disaster survival story from a regular story? <laughs> <laughs> uh, sometimes there may not be a very big line, but I would say that it's some sort of disaster <laughs> that happens um, in unknowing situation. That could mean some sort of situation where there's something ominous, but I don't really like those stories. I like the stories okay. that are just someone's going about their business and then a situation happens out of their control and they need to get out of it. Sometimes people get out of those situations really quickly and then other times they don't. And that's when it turns into a survival story? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is a very specific thing. I think this is one of the more specific topics that I've had. Is there a group of people out there that is also obsessed with this kind of thing? I would what? like to think so. Okay. Be <laughs> you know, when I tell people that I'm interested in this genre, I, I get one of two reactions. It's either people look at me and think that I'm crazy because they think I enjoy stories about plane crashes. Right. <laughs> Which is not all that it is. That's part of it. Yeah. Um, but then there's also a group of people that are, they have a knowing smile and they'll say something to me like, oh, have you ever heard of the show I Shouldn't Be Alive? And I'll say, yes, I've heard every episode. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Love it. How yeah. did you get into this type of story? Do you remember the first one that you heard? I do. Okay. When I was in about fifth grade, maybe maybe sixth grade, there was a film that came out and it was called Alive. Have you ever heard of this film? I don't know how widely no. known it is. Um, they called it The Miracle of the Andes. And it was a true story about... Uruguayan rugby team that in 1972 they were chartering a plane that was going over the Andes Mountains and it crashed. The whole team? The whole team. Okay. It, and some family members and some other people too. And it crashed high in the Andes Mountains and they were stranded for a long period of time without food and with no way to escape. Oh my gosh. So the movie itself is very compelling and horrific. There's cannibalism involved. That was going to be my first question. <laughs> yep. There was there's avalanche situations where more people died. Um, but in the end, they were stuck in the mountains for 72 days. The oh last gosh. 10 days, they had two of their crew um, hike down the mountain and go seek help. And they found help. It was a 10-day trek they had to take outside of the mountains. And they found help in Chile. And they were able to rescue um, some of these people. So 16 out of the original 45 people on the flight survived. 
Um, That's not a lot. It's not a lot, but it's a lot when you consider that it was a plane crash and that they survived right. 72 days. Right. How many died in the plane crash? I want to say that it was about half of the people or something like that. Okay. And then a few more died in the avalanche and a few more people died just um, because of their injuries and stuff. And yeah. you saw this when you were in fifth grade? You know, I think I, I remember watching it at home, so it must have come out on VHS video back in the day. Uh, so I was probably in middle school. What did you keep thinking about it? What did you like about it? What? Well, I didn't know that it was nonfiction at first. Oh, is so, the film pretty accurate? I think so. Yeah, there's a, a book that parallels the movie. I think the book came first. Okay. I later read the book, and of course it has a lot more details and stuff like that. The, the movie was pretty faithful to what I read in the book. It was the type of thing where I remember sitting in the living room with my family, and I think my brother said to me, you know, this is a true story, don't you? Uh-huh. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. <laughs> but then at the end of the movie, they have, as they do in these nonfiction stories, they have in, in the credits, they'll say what happened to each main character yeah. in the years that came after. And I, I was bewildered. So then I watched it again and again and again. Oh, my gosh. Then I read the book. <laughs> and then you read the book. <laughs> yes. So that's a air that's an air disaster survival story. Air survive or air disaster and mountain survival. Oh man, mountain survival subgenre. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 And when you were in fifth grade watching this, what was appealing to you about it? Was it the fact that this happened and you can't believe it? Or I, I think a, a natural part of me hearing these stories is the question of what would I do? That's always my most interesting. That is exactly where my fascination comes from. Love it. Okay. Yeah. Because if I can go off on a little bit of a tangent here. There are no such things. (laughs) There's no such thing on this podcast. You know, part of my fascination with these stories is the fact that survival is innate in human beings. It's something that we're wired to do. But in our society, we're not actively thinking about it. You know, I just had my lunch. We eat three meals a day, generally. We have water, we have shelter, we have clothing. Mm-hmm. We even don't even have to think about really walkable terrain where we're living. Right. So we have found ways to survive such that we don't even have to think about it. And so when I'm encountered with a situation where your life depends on it, you know, this in right. the story, I go right there. I think, what would I do, you know? And actually, I feel like because... I have found a lot of interest in these stories. I think that if I was faced with a situation where my life depended on my survival, I would like to think I'd go far, you know, because I've seen it modeled to me through these stories what's required. But I also think that survival isn't just about the person or the people that are overcoming something. It's also about learning from our past mistakes So that may mean that, you know, if a plane crash happens and all these people die, that's horrific. That's horrible. Yeah. But if you conduct an investigation and you discover that something happened that is fixable and is fixable across the board, to me, there's some sort of redemptive quality in that, sort of like a beauty from ashes type of thing. Right. The beauty of surviving given the circumstances. Yeah. I think all of this points towards a couple of truths that are uh, compelling to me. And the first is that humans can have an incredible amount of sheer willpower if they're faced in with certain situations. And Hmm. that determination is very compelling to me. 
as a person. That's like the mom lifting up the car over the... Yeah, yeah, the adrenaline and all of that, yes. But also, and this this is pretty compelling as well, we rely on each other for rescue. We rely on each other to think back upon something that happened and work together to fix it. I think that that sort of commonality of doing life with other people is true across life, whether in a Hmm. disaster situation or survival situation. I think that we were made to help each other. We can't survive without other people. Right, which theoretically is happening now. Correct. We just don't see it as clearly as two people hiking down a mountain for 10 days. But even with two people hiking down a mountain for 10 days, they're trying to save themselves. Mm -hmm. But they are also desperately hoping that they find another person, that someone will find them. You know, the the search and rescue team will come or they'll come across farmers or something. They hope they'll find someone. Um, And when they do, the feeling of gratitude and elation that comes along with that, I feel like I can almost empathize. Yeah. So that's a little bit of the philosophy behind why, why I'm interested in so many of these interesting weird stories yeah right <laughs> so are you practicing these survival skills now <laughs> no. like... oh man in some way i i wished that i had the type of life where i could make space for that you okay know. but when i was a kid we every summer we would go to the mountains and we would camp or we would fish or we would go to the ocean and we would go crabbing clamming that sort of thing And one of the regular activities that we did was we would drive high up into the mountain on some rugged road where if you drive off the road by a foot, you fall down the mountain. Oh, gosh. And we would go berry picking. We we did this a lot of years. We would bring our berries back and sell them for money that we could spend at the fair. Nice. And I remember when I was younger, when we would be out in in an area where there were huckleberries or blueberries, my parents would say, don't go far because there are grizzly bears in this area. And so I think when I was young, I was taught to have a healthy respect for nature and Mm -hmm. almost the autonomous aspect of how the food chain works and um, to respect when I'm outside the situations that I could find myself. And I was put in more of those types of situations when I was younger, just because my family dared to go outside a lot, right. more so than I am in now. Did you ever see a bear? I did not ever okay. see a bear. There was one time that we were camping, and in the middle of the night, we could hear a bear going through our trash bag oh, gosh. that we had forgot to tie up high. At least I, I think I'm remembering that story right. So... That was kind of the closest. I had a fox encounter once while camping. Oh, no. Same thing, going through my food. And it scared me. Really? To, to death. Oh, yeah. no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'm an outdoors person in general. I mean, you, you, you referenced it as the respect for nature. I think that nature kind of just scares me. Yeah. Or if, if there's like a high risk involved in something, why do it? That's that's. <laughs> well, there's a, a reverence you must have. A, re- right. a fear, a proper fear of yeah, nature. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm also interested in in mountaineering stories and just to kind of come back to the point of am I practicing these survival right. skills? I've never been mountaineering. I've never hiked up a rock face or an ice wall. 
But I could probably tell you a lot about how to do it based off of all of the research I've done. Right, right. I even follow mountaineering companies on Instagram. It's, <laughs> I, I would say it's embarrassing. It's not embarrassing. It's just funny. Yeah, right, yeah. right. What's the closest that you've come to a disaster survival story? I remember one time we drove up into the mountains because I lived very near a mountain chain growing up. We drove up to go sledding and we sledded all day and had a great time. It was my me, my friend, and her mom. And at the end of the day, her mom went to go grab her keys and they were missing out of her pocket. And we had been sledding all up and down this snowy mountainside. Oh my gosh. And she had to hitchhike to the nearest phone because this was a time when people didn't really have cell phones. And Relying on somebody else, hitchhiking. Relying on somebody else, yes, yeah. exactly. Um, and left the two of us in the snowy area, in the mountains. And we were younger, like maybe late elementary school or something. Oh <laughs> I know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And um, we waited and waited, and she finally came back. We thought maybe there was a key <laughs> in her car, so we broke a window open. Of the car? Of the car, and there wasn't. It was a house key, not a car key. How did you break the window open? I don't remember. A rock or that's, something. That's epic. Yeah, yeah. Just as we were, I don't know, we had been there a long time, and we were expecting a tow truck to come or something. Just as we were about to pack up and leave, we kind of surveyed the area once more, and it was dusk. And there was a last glimpse of sunlight. And someone saw something reflecting off of whatever. So we went over to it, and it was her keys shining in that last bit of sunlight. So we drove the whole way home, and I had to sit in the seat next to the open window in the wintertime. Was the mom upset? We were just so grateful to not be stuck in that (laughs) situation. But so that's the closest. I mean, there are a couple other stories I have that are similar, you know. Yeah. A tire falling off of our trailer when we were in a canyon road. But What effect have cell phones had on this genre of story? I feel like that kind of takes the risk out of a lot of these situations. I think so, but... In cases like sea disasters and mountain or wilderness survival, sometimes, actually more often than not, there's not cell phone reception. Okay. I think there will be a day, probably not too far from now, where you'll just have cell phone reception all over the planet. But I've heard many stories where someone is lost at sea and maybe they have a cell phone, but it doesn't work where they are, and then it goes dead. So you're done. Or other people who are really, really high up on a mountain and the only capability their cell phone has at that time is to send a text message. It's hard with those limited means. Yeah, or battery running out or whatever. Exactly. So you mentioned mountain, wilderness, sea. Are there different types? Yeah, I'd put kind of mountain and wilderness into one category, even though wilderness could be like the desert of Australia, you know? Yeah, yeah. Are these agreed upon categories or are these? No, these are my category? these okay. are my categories. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, mountain and wilderness, sea, and then the other one would be aviation. Mm. So I'm interested in commercial air flight, but also NASA as well. Wow! Yes. Space survival uh, stories. That's another level. Yes, it is another level. Actually, the Apollo 13 movie 
was another one of those kind of early days uh, influencers for me. Because mm. it I came out. I actually just watched that. Recently. Did you? Yeah. I watch it frequently. Nice. <laughs> um, it came out when I was in seventh grade. That was like 1995. And it was another one of those movies where we watched it in my household like once a week. Right. You know. The Apollo 13 mission is very interesting to me because not only was there tremendous stamina and expertise of the three crewmen who were inside of that that vehicle, but also there was a tremendous amount of teamwork and expertise put forth by all these people on the ground, and that's what brought them home, you know? Hmm. Well, it was kind of a team effort. They called it a successful failure. And later, that sparked my interest in NASA in general. And later, I would come to find out just how amazing the NASA space program is from a collaborative effort, you know, standpoint. So much intelligence and trial and error and hard work has gone into making that program uh, what it is, what it has been these last several decades. Did you see 127 hours? Yeah. Did you like that? Yeah, um, I actually had heard about this story before yeah. the movie came out. Yeah, it was this guy named Aaron Ralston. I think, I think uh, 127 hours. What's that? Six days. I think that was. Yeah. That was the time period. Can I tell you about that? Yeah. Go, yeah. Go for it. A lot of these stories have been made into movies. You know, so you get a lot of the narrative if right. you watch the movie. The books are even better because you get inside the mind of each person. Are often the books written with input from the person that actually wrote yeah. the story? Yeah, a lot of times they're written by the person themselves. Yeah. yeah. Jim Lovell wrote a book called Lost Moon about the Apollo 13 mission Okay. that is incredibly detailed, and it's so great. Yeah. <laughs> all kinds of really fascinating scientific details. I'm not an astronaut at all. I'm a musician, but I really can appreciate the details that went into that. Right. And then I mentioned Alive, that movie had a book as well. Also, I believe that was not authored by Survival. But anyway, um, yeah, 127 Hours was a Utah canyoneering hike gone wrong where he was rappelling down a cliff and then... By himself. By himself. And then a boulder above him had come loose and it came down and, you know, broke his hand or smashed his hand or something. And then it lodged him <laughs> between oh. two giant rock faces. Yeah. Um, and his hand was stuck under the boulder. And so for several days, he was stuck there. He didn't have anything to drink or eat after some time. He had to drink his own urine, which is disgusting. But that's what he had to do. That's in every single one of these (laughs) Yes. And then he had the thought oh, well, if I just try to amputate my arm, I could get out of here. And if that's my ticket to life, then I'll take it. Right. But he tried a couple of different ways. All he had was this cheapo pocket knife. He tried a couple of different ways to do that, and he couldn't. And then finally, on the, the sixth day, he realized that if he dislocated his arm that he would be able to cut through it it's so horrible but he did it but he did it and he he hiked out and (laughs) in his hike out he encountered a family or a group of people that were also hiking and they were able to give him water and get him rescued 
So even the timing of that, it was a fairly remote area, but he happened to run into this family at the time that he escaped, you know. And he lived to tell the story. Doesn't have an arm. Yeah. But he's you, alive. So the question of would I do this, that's a natural part of hearing these stories. Do you think that's even a fair question to ask? Because I'm not there. I'm not having to make – like right now I'm going to stand back and say I don't think I would. I think I would choose death possibly. But if I'm facing the will to live in that kind of a moment, who knows what I'll do. Yeah. Uh, that's a hard question yeah. to even try to tackle because each person is different. And then each situation is different. You know, I'm the type of person that doesn't necessarily know my own boundaries. So I mm -hmm. push my life to the limit and I do all the things. And then someone else will tell me, oh, you don't have to push your boundaries that far. Right. You can stop. So if I was in a situation where I had the thought, oh, if I just amputate my arm, I'll be free. I probably would keep going on forever and ever and ever, hoping that I'd be rescued so that I didn't have to amputate my arm and right. make that call. Right. But I don't know until I'm actually there. Did you get on the whole Bear Grylls kick when that was a thing? The surviving stories, how to survive in the wilderness? No. These Discovery Channel shows? No. Man see, versus Wild? Like I like things. completely organic, true stories. Yes. Stories like in the past tense, not right. in the how to. Do you have some favorite ones? Favorite you... stories? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> there, was, there was the mining accident, I think, of that one recently. Yeah. That you know, kind of a survival story. Yeah. That most definitely is a survival story. I actually watched that in earnest. I was like, pray for those miners. Yeah, <laughs> They're right. lost. But, yeah, I think that I tend to go between uh, that have to do with sea and then stories that have to do with aviation. I go back and forth between mm -hmm. my interest in that. Um, for sea stories, my interest was piqued with those through the movie. Do you know? Titanic. Titanic. Nice. You got it. Do you know how many times I saw that in the I theater? I loved Titanic. Five yeah. times I saw it in the theater. And yeah, it has a nice fictional aspect. But again, the personal narrative, imagining what it would be like to endure something like that is very compelling to me. And also the totally superfluous nature of that disaster. It did not have to happen. They had enough lifeboats for half the people on that boat. And now, today, because of that, I don't right. have to think when I get on a boat, I don't have to think about whether or not I have a lifeboat seat for me. Yeah. I have one, you know. It's a ridiculous story that didn't have to happen, but we learned from it. Mm -hmm. But my favorite sea story is that that's kind of a juxtaposition to call a disaster right. your favorite. My favorite disaster story. My favorite disaster story um, is... The true story of a man named Stephen Callahan, he wrote a book called Adrift that was became pretty popular as these books go, right. at least. And he was stranded at sea for 76 days. He was traveling from the Canary Islands of Spain to Antigua, and he thinks that a whale ran into his boat. He was by himself. It was a small boat. The boat began to take on water very quickly. Oh so he had gosh. to get out. He was sleeping. He had to get out of his boat very fast, inflate his life raft. It was a six-person life raft, about six feet across. So um, if, you, you know, if you have to survive in something, I would rather have a six-person life raft yeah. than a one-person life right. raft. Um, and he was able to grab his ditch bag that had a spear, a sleeping bag, some flares in it. He even had, like, navigation charts and 
these solar stills, which I will tell you about in a minute. Yeah. He very, very quickly had to get all of that over into the raft, and the boat sank soon after. And the raft itself wasn't filled with air. It was very vulnerable, obviously. Right. It had a, the, a top portion to the raft that either was zippered or it had like little buttons okay. that would minimally protect him from the sun and some of the elements. But it was a raft, yeah. you know, and he was on it for 76 days. But some of the things that helped him in that terrible situation was the fact that he maintained order while he was aboard that raft. He exercised, he problem solved, he tried to fix systems that were um, not quite working. So one of the the mini stories from his story is that Mm -hmm. he was trying to spear fish because he hunted sea life like a caveman. (laughs) And the spear came out on the fish. Uh, so he, he jabbed the fish, but the end of the spear dislodged from the stick he was using. And so it got stuck in the fish and the fish freaked out and it went underneath his raft and cut a hole in the bottom. Oh my gosh. And that was his lifeline, was this raft. And he's stuck in the middle of the ocean. Here he is, he has a hand pump and he's, he tries to kind of patch it up and it doesn't work. And he's literally hand pumping this raft o- around the clock dawns on him, I still don't quite understand how this worked, but it dawns on him that if he uses this fork that he had and puts it in a certain way, that that would patch the hole. And so he uses a fork to patch a hole in a raft, and it works. It works. Yeah. To me, that's like, that's genius. That's that's amazing. But he kept his wits about him during that that time. And the other thing that's great is that his ditch kit had a lot of very important survival items, like these solar stills. Have you ever heard of a solar still before? No. They're pretty amazing contraptions. If you can imagine like a beach ball that has a flat bottom on it, uh, on the inside of this beach ball-like thing, there's a cloth in it, and there's a hole in the bottom of the solar still, and water enters through the hole. And the cloth that's inside becomes saturated. So the beach ball type thing is floating on the surface of the ocean in the sun. And the sun causes the water to evaporate. So it goes upward and it gathers on the top of this plastic beach ball like thing. And once the drops get heavy enough, they fall to the side of the solar still. And so all of that can be collected into a little baggie. And you can drink water that does not have salt in it, right. and it's a key to survival. You know, they say in sea survival, it's ironic because you're surrounded by water, and yet it's like a desert Yeah, because none of the water is drinkable. It's actually dangerous to you. <laughs> so when he's hunting for fish, is he eating it raw? What was he doing? Yeah, so he ate some of it raw, and he had like a makeshift clothesline inside of his um, his raft, and he would cut the fish into strips and dry them over the clothesline, and he would save that and eat it over time. You know what? Through this story, I learned that there is a such thing as flying fish. Did you know that? I don't think I did. Yeah. No flying squirrels. 
There are flying squirrels? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. They glide more than fly. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So he tells a story about how he was sitting in his boat, and then one day, all of a sudden, all these fish started flying, and a bunch of them ended up in his boat, and it was great because he had all this food. He even ate turtles, too. Okay. I don't know what other kind of sea creatures he ate, but he, he had no choice but yeah. to eat them raw. I've read quite a few sea stories like this, and no one ever talks about how gross it was in eating the sea creatures. They talk about how great it was to have food. Yeah. So I know I have a hard time with sushi. I have a hard time with raw meat in general. So I know that would be, if if that was me, Mm -hmm. that would be kind of like a learning curve or something for me to get over. But if my survival depended on it, you better bet I would eat it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So how was he rescued? I'm dying to know the resolution to this story. <laughs> if he um, was at all. <laughs> yes. Um, so he was doing pretty poorly by the end of these 75, 76 days. On the 75th day, he saw land. And he had suspected that land was coming. Be- um, is he navigating towards land? Or is in a raft, are you just aimlessly floating? You have You are aimlessly floating. Actually, as a side note, this guy, Stephen Callahan has lobbied to have life rafts also include some kind of sail nowadays so that people who are stuck at sea would have more control over where it is that they're going. But he was completely at the mercy of these trade winds that took him anywhere. So he encounters land on the 75th day. He's elated. You know, night comes, and then the next day he's a lot closer to the land, and he can see that it's like a sheer cliff. He comes all this way, and then he has no idea how it's going to be possible for him to even get on the land. At this time, there were fishermen in the area, and they saw birds first. They saw a group of birds flying over his raft, and it was curious to them. So they got closer, and then they saw this raft. So the fishermen were the ones who eventually rescued him. And it took many weeks for him to become rehabilitated, as it does for a lot of these people who come out of... Yeah, what's that process? Yeah, it depends on on the person. Usually if there's some sort of severe dehydration and starvation involved, um, their stomachs actually can't digest normal food, even though ravenously hungry um, after they're rescued. They have to be really careful because the body can't digest Mm -hmm. after a situation like that. Um, a lot of people also, when they've been severely dehydrated, they will end up with a lot of swelling all over their body. So that's another thing that has to be regulated. And so it's not smooth sailing, mm-hmm. you know, when they're rescued. They actually have to be hospitalized for quite some time. And then, of course, if there are any other obvious injuries, people in mountaineering accidents tend to have like broken bones and oh, horrible, horrible things yeah. um, that that they also have to have surgery for or whatever. There's also the emotional, relational, I think of Castaway with yeah. Tom Hanks. Oh, yeah. And that, that They really highlighted the emotional, relational re- rehabilitation towards the end there. Have you found any common strands of life lessons or a new outlook on life? I don't know how you can come back from that and be the same that you were before. You're looking at life completely differently after that. Well, I think that there's a common theme of gratefulness Mm -hmm. that these people have. They feel like they've been given a whole new chance at life. And 
even though a lot of these people in in the survivor survival stories, a lot of them have pushed through, they still pretty much have felt hopeless for days, most of them. Yeah. So that's got to be pretty profound. They thought they were going to die, and then they didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Stephen Callahan went from a, a quiet life to being a speaker, and he um, has worked to improve that industry a lot and to motivate people, I guess. Yeah. That's the classic situation where you don't think it's going to happen to you, and then it happens to you. How many times have many of us gotten on an airplane and thought, this airplane is probably going to crash? Yeah. I, I feel like that happens to me almost every time I fly. Right. And yet it doesn't, right? Right. So absolutely, you hit the nail on the head. These things don't happen when we're expecting them yeah. to happen. Yeah. <laughs> they happen when we're not paying attention, Yeah. you know? I always get somewhat freaked out when people aren't paying attention to the stewardess on airplanes. Yeah. When they're explaining the life vest and stuff. Yeah. Like, you you guys need to pay attention to this. We don't know (laughs) if you might need to use this. That's correct. I'm going to know the little tube to blow. The life raft is there and you're not. I'm the one who reads the evacuation plan on the (laughs) card. Okay. I read that. And I read that actually as a result of all the stories in aviation that I know about. Yeah. Where people literally were trying to evacuate from an already on fire aircraft that sooner or later is going to blow. I want to get out of there as fast as possible. So in a real life situation, not in a hypothetical situation, but in a real life situation, I want to know what it's going to take to get me out of there. Hmm. So yeah, I totally do. I can tell you a little bit about maybe an aviation story or two. Please, yeah, let's end on this. Yes, great. So there have been a decent amount of plane crashes from which major changes came in the aviation industry, in the commercial industry, but also just aviation in general. There are two stories that were really compelling to me. Okay. The first one. I want both of them. Yes. The first one was an accident that happened in 1977 in the Tenerife Airport in Spain, and 583 people died. It's the biggest disaster in aviation history. Wow. And it was so avoidable. Was that on a, that's everybody on a plane? It's two 747s. Oh. Yes. I see where this is going. There were 61 survivors, actually. Yeah, so there were two 747s. It was a Pan Am flight and a KLM flight. And they were both ready to take off from the Tenerife airport. But there was a dense fog in the airport, so they couldn't really see anything. They were relying entirely upon directions that were being given to them from the... Aircraft control? Air traffic control. Air traffic control. Thank you. Air traffic control. And so the Pan Am plane gets on the runway. They're about to get on the taxiway, but they're on the runway. And the KLM plane is sitting on the other end. And they began the takeoff without clearance from air traffic control. He thought he had clearance, the captain. Mm -hmm. But it's clear in the cockpit voice recorder that other people in the cockpit did not think that it was time to go, but they did not raise their concern appropriately. And so they started to take off. They, at the last minute, saw the other plane parked at the other end and tried to rotate and pull up, but the plane wasn't quite going fast enough. So it basically 
sheared the top of the airplane that was sitting at the other end. Whoa. That's how there ended up being survivors because it wasn't a head-on collision, but a ton of people died. And as a result, it changed the standard of air traffic controllers in the terminology and phrasing that they used so that there wasn't any confusion about whose turn it was. And also there were there was a great deal of cockpit crew training as well, primarily emphasizing the equality amongst crew. And this, unfortunately, did not completely do the trick because there were other plane crashes that came after that one where you know, the, the head captain is mm-hmm. the guy who has seniority and you don't question them, you know, but then it ends up in a plane crash. Right. <laughs> you really should question them and right. question them boldly. So that's the Tenerife accident. And then the final accident I want to share with you is this mid-air collision that happened over India. In that's the... got to be the worst. What are the chances of a mid-air collision? Yeah. I don't know. It's got to be one in millions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, In 1996. The 90s are further back than I always want them to be, but that's pretty recent. (laughs) Relatively, yeah. There was one plane that was coming down and one plane that was going up. And the one that was coming down was told to be at 15,000 feet. And the one that was coming up was told to be at 14,000 feet and to hold. Unfortunately, the one that was coming down kept coming down. And the air traffic controller realized at the last minute that they weren't where they ought to be. And so he tried to warn them, you know, traffic on on your ride or whatever, pull up or something. He radioed again and it was silence. And by then they had hit each other. So all the people died. It was like about 350 people. It was one of the deadliest air traffic. Yeah. What are the chances of survival in a mid-air collision? Oh, zero. Zero. Yeah. Zero. Because there's nothing you can do as a passenger. It's not like you have a parachute right. <laughs> on your way down. I mean, that's it. The force of falling is enough, unfortunately. This investigation was a pretty big one because there were several factors that led to it. Um, one of the factors was in the plane that was descending, there was only one person in the crew that was really comfortable with speaking English. So he was the radio guy. And there was also a confusion with meters versus nautical miles and feet. Um, Classic. So they were having trouble translating the language, having trouble translating the numbers. And the guy who was on the radio had to look over the captain's shoulder to even see their altitude. So when he said descend to 15,000 feet, they started descending, but no one ever stopped them. That is a problem. <laughs> right. That can be fixed by, um, you know, enforcing English as as the language, which is the language that's used universally in um, air travel, but also in making sure that the right people have the right instrumentation, mm. you know, and they're not reading over people's shoulders and stuff. Right. Um, They also developed what's called air corridors on that incident. So it's like a slice of the pie around a city. This slice of the pie is for flights that are coming in. And this other slice of the pie is for flights going out so that they will never actually be on a collision course. Yeah. But the other thing that they changed as a result of this was they have 
a system. It's called TCAS, um, Traffic Collision Avoidance System. Essentially, a TCAS system will alert two planes if they are getting close to each other, and then it will give them instructions. It will say to one plane, pull up, and it'll say to another plane, go down. And so that system is supposed to help safeguard those two planes from running into each other. That's just like a computer doing that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because the, the main method of monitoring airplanes had been just ground radar, but they needed a ground radar that not only showed where people or where where planes were at, but yeah. also how high up they were. And neither of these planes had a TCAS system installed in their um, aircraft. If they had had a TCAS system, which did exist at the time, it they did. just they weren't mandatory. Right. If they had had the TCAS system, it probably would have been avoided because the air traffic controller's warning came too late, hmm. right? You know, it's kind of like when you depend just on radar, it's kind of like driving down the road and relying completely on street lamps for your lights. Mm-hmm. But TCAS is like having headlights. You mm-hmm. can see as you're moving where you're going or the obstacles that are in your way. And you don't have to worry on some ground fixed item, right. you know, that's going to show you where you're going. It's a good metaphor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Can you explain the black box to me? <laughs> the black box. What I feel like that comes up on every one of these stories. I don't know what it is. <laughs> yes, really. it's a it's a black box that's not actually black. It's okay. orange. Nice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there are two black boxes. There's the cockpit voice recorder. They call it the CVR. And then the data recorder. So the cockpit voice recorder, it's it runs on a loop. I believe cockpit voice recorders record about the last 30 minutes of any flight. So usually that's enough information to mm-hmm. know um, what happened. And they try to make them virtually indestructible, even if, heaven forbid, that a plane should fly directly into the ground. A lot of times they've been able to salvage the cockpit voice recorders. Um, what is it? What makes it indestructible? It's the it's the exterior. I don't like quite know. Like a safe or something? Like yeah, it's, it's like yeah. that, yep. And same thing with the data recorder. It's, it's the, got the same type of protection. And that data recorder helps them to know, you know, was the plane on automatic pilot when it, was, when it went down or when the thing happened? Mm-hmm. Or was it doing something funky or things like that? And so then if they can salvage and find both of those, that gives them a great deal of information to go by in their um, investigation. Anytime there is a plane crash in the United States, We have the NTSB, which is an organization that deals with a lot of different types Mm -hmm. of transportation accidents. But um, the NTSB will come and do a thorough investigation. And a lot of times it results in change. It's a pretty rapidly changing industry in response to one of these. Yeah. It is encouraging. Yeah. And that's why when I read about a plane crash, it's horrible. It's horrible. But there is something very comforting for me when I get on a plane to know that years and years of analysis and study have gone into making that experience a safer one for me. Mm-hmm. So I actually worry less than maybe some other people might because I understand 
not only a lot about what goes into flying that aircraft, right. but what has gone into doing it safely. Right. Yeah. Jess, this is great. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for letting me share a little bit of my I had a nerdy. Moment, yeah. I had a moment where I sat here and was like, are we really talking about this? But yeah, we did. It was great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to another episode of My Obsession. If you enjoyed this conversation, it'd be a huge help if you rate and review the show on iTunes or Google Play. That really does go a long way. Thanks to all who have already written reviews. Huge help for me. Finally, I want to talk to you about your obsession. If you or somebody you know wants to come on the show, email me at myobsessionpodcast at gmail.com. My Obsession is produced by me, and much thanks to all the guests who gave me a few hours to record with them. Super thanks to Tony Wallace and the High Rock North Shore Church, who graciously helped me to upgrade my recording setup for season two. All guests in all interviews, opinions are their own. The music is written and provided by the artist State Shirt. I am Marcus Privet. Until next time.